Chapter 11 of Will Warburton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth. Will Warburton by George Gissing. Chapter 11. The Crosses, mother and daughter, lived at Wallam Green. The house was less pleasant than another which Mrs. Cross owned at Putney, but it also represented a lower rental, and poverty obliged them to take this into account. When the second house stood tenantless, as had now been the case for half a year, Mrs. Cross's habitually querulous comment on life rose to a note of acrimony very afflictive to her daughter Bertha. The two bore as little resemblance to each other, physical or mental, as mother and child well could. Bertha Cross was a sensible, thoughtful girl, full of kindly feeling, and blessed with a humorous turn that enabled her to see the amusing rather than the carking side of her pinched life. These virtues she had from her father. Poor Cross, who supplemented a small income from office routine by occasional comic journalism, and even wrote a farce, which brought money to a theatrical manager, made on his deathbed a characteristic joke. He had just signed his will, and was left alone with his wife. "'I'm sure I've always wished to make your life happy,' piped the afflicted woman, "'and I yours.' he faintly answered, adding with a sad, kind smile as he pointed to the testamentary document, "'Take the will for the deed.' The two sons had emigrated to British Columbia, and Bertha would not have been sorry to join her brothers there, for domestic labour on a farm, in peace and health, seemed to her considerably better than the quasi-genteel life she painfully supported. She had never dreamt of being an artist, but, showing some facility with the pencil, was sent by her father to South Kensington, where she met and made friends with Rosamond Elvin. Her necessity and her application being greater than Rosamond's, Bertha before long succeeded in earning a little money. Without this help, life at home would scarcely have been possible for her. They might, to be sure, have taken a lodger, having spare rooms, but Mrs. Cross could only face that possibility if the person received into the house were respectable enough to be called a paying guest, and no such person offered. So they lived, as no end of respectable families do, a life of penury and seclusion, sometimes going without a meal that they might have decent clothing to wear abroad, never able to buy a book, to hear a concert, and only by painful sacrifice able to entertain a friend. When, on a certain occasion, Miss Elvin passed a week at their house, Mrs. Cross approved of this friendship, and hoped it might be a means of discovering the paying guest. It meant for them a near approach to salvation during the month that ensued. Time would have weighed heavily on Mrs. Cross, but for her one recreation, which was perennial, ever fresh, constantly full of surprises and excitement. Poor as she was, she contrived to hire a domestic servant. To say that she kept one would come near to a verbal impropriety, seeing that no servant ever remained in the house for more than a few months, whilst it occasionally happened that the space of half a year would see a succession of some half-dozen generals. Underpaid and underfed, these persons— they varied in age from fourteen to forty, were, of course, incompetent, careless, rebellious, and Mrs. Cross found the sole genuine pleasure of her life in the war she waged with them. Having no reasonable way of spending her hours, she was thus supplied with occupation. Being of acrid temper, she was thus supplied with a subject upon whom she could fearlessly exercise it. Being remarkably mean of disposition, she saw in the paring down of her servants' rations to a working minimum at once profit and sport. Lastly, being fond of the most trivial gossip, she had a never-failing topic of discussion with such ladies as could endure her society. Bertha, having been accustomed to this domestic turbulence all her life long, for the most part paid no heed to it. She knew that if the management of the house were in her hands, instead of her mother's, 
things would go much more smoothly. But the mere suggestion of such a change, ventured once in a moment of acute crisis, had so amazed and exasperated Mrs. Cross that Bertha never again looked in that direction. Yet, from time to time, a revolt of common sense forced her to speak, and as the only possible way, if quarrel were to be avoided, she began her remonstrance on a humorous note. Then, when her mother had been wearying her for half an hour with complaints and lamentations over the misdoings of one Emma, Bertha, as the alternative to throwing up her hands and rushing out of the house, began laughing to herself, whereat Mrs. Cross indignantly begged to be informed what there was so very amusing in a state of affairs which would assuredly bring her to her grave. "'If only you could see the comical side of it, mother,' replied Bertha. "'It really has one, you know.' Emma, if you would only be patient with her, is a well-meaning creature, and she says the funniest things. I asked her this morning if she didn't think she could find some way of remembering to put salt on the table, and she looked at me very solemnly and said, Indeed I will, miss. I'll put it into my prayers just after our daily bread. Mrs. Cross saw nothing in this but profanity. She turned the attack on Bertha, who, by her soft way of speaking, simply encouraged the servants, she declared, in negligence and insolence. "'Look at it in this way, mother,' replied the girl, as soon as she was suffered to speak. "'To be badly served is bad enough in itself. "'Why make it worse by ceaseless talking about it, "'so leaving ourselves not a moment of peace and quiet? "'I'm sure I'd rather put the salt on the table myself at every meal "'and think no more about it than worry, worry, worry "'over the missing salt cellars from one meal to the next. "'Don't you feel, dear mother, that it's a shocking waste of life? "'What nonsense you talk, child!' Are we to live in dirt and disorder? Am I never to correct a servant or teach her her duties? But, of course, everything I do is wrong. Of course, you could do everything so very much better. That's what children are nowadays. Whilst Mrs. Cries piped on, Bertha regarded her with eyes of humorous sadness. The girl often felt it a dreary thing not to be able to respect, nay, not to be able to feel much love for her mother. At such times, her thoughts turned to the other parent, with whom... Had he and she been left alone, she could have lived so happily, in so much mutual intelligence and affection. She sighed and moved away. The unlet house was a very serious matter, and when one day Norbert Franks came to talk about it, saying that he might want a house very soon, and thought this of Mrs. Cross's might suit him, Bertha rejoiced no less than her mother. In consequence of the artist's announcement, she wrote to her friend Rosamond, saying how glad she was to hear that her marriage approached. The reply to this letter surprised her. Rosamond had been remiss in correspondence for the last few months, her few and brief letters, though they were as affectionate as ever, making no mention of what had formerly been an inexhaustible topic, the genius, goodness, and brilliant hopes of Franks. Now she wrote as if in utter despondency, a letter so confused in style and vague in expression that Bertha could gather from it little or nothing except a grave doubt whether Franks's marriage was as near as he supposed. A week or two passed, and Rosamond again wrote, from Switzerland. Again, the letter was an unintelligible maze of dreary words, and a mere moaning and sighing, which puzzled Bertha as much as it distressed her. Rosamond's epistolary style, when she wrote to this bosom friend, was always pitched in a key of lyrical emotion, which now and then would have been trying to Bertha's sense of humour, but for the sincerity manifest in every word. Hitherto, however, she had expressed herself with perfect lucidity, and this sudden change seemed ominous of alarming things. Just when Bertha was anxiously worrying what could have happened, of course inclined to attribute blame, if blame there were, to the artist rather than his betrothed, a stranger came to inquire about the house to let. 
it was necessary to ascertain at once whether mr franks intended to become their tenant or not mrs gross wrote to him and received the briefest possible reply to the effect that his plans were changed how vexatious disclaimed mrs gross i had very much rather we had let to people we know i suppose he's seen a house that suits him better i think there's another reason said bertha after gazing for a minute or two at the scribbled careless note the marriage is put off and you knew that cried her mother all the time and never told me and i might have missed twenty chances of letting really bertha i never did see anything like you there's that house standing empty month after month and we hardly know where to turn for money and you knew mr franks wouldn't take it and yet you say not a word how can you behave in such an extraordinary way i think you really find displeasure in worrying me any one would fancy you wished to see me in my grave to think that you knew all this time End of chapter 11 recording by sabrina jazz ainsworth